All right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Aaron. Glad to be here and have a chance to speak with you this morning. Welcome, especially uh, those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. If this is your first time at Trailhead, we are so glad you're here. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. I'm not going to scream it like Emily did, but um, I, hope, I hope so far 2015 has been a good year for you. Uh, we are going to look together this morning at Romans chapter 7. If you have a Bible, I'd be really excited if you'd open up to Romans chapter 7 and read along with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one under the chair in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, then that Bible is our gift to you. You take that home, read that. Um, what we're going to cover today, I had to pick like a, a kind of a smaller section. There was so much that goes with this, and I couldn't cover it all. So take that Bible home, read it, read all of Romans chapter 7, read Romans chapter 8, read the whole thing, okay? Because there's so much good stuff in here that we couldn't cover it all this morning. So if you uh, have your Bible, if you're looking in that, that Bible uh, under the chair, it's on page 944, and we're going to start in verse 21, Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Follow along with me as I read. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The word of the Lord. So, it's the beginning of a new year, and traditionally, this would be the point where I would either ask you how many of you have made a New Year's resolution, or maybe I would give you some statistics about New Year's resolutions, about how many people make them, about how many people stick with them. And, and I was going to do that. I was going to look up statistics on it, and then I kind of had this realization Surveys and polls about New Year's resolutions are probably not accurate at all because everybody lies about New Year's resolutions, right? Like, not everybody makes New Year's resolutions, but everybody makes fun of them, right? Like, everybody thinks New Year's resolutions are, are a total joke. Are you with me on this? Right? Like, nobody I've ever met will admit to making New Year's resolutions, no, that's stupid. I would never do that. Nobody keeps them anyway, right? And that's what we all say. Like, nobody keeps New Year's resolutions. I mean, honestly, have you ever heard anybody talk about a New Year's resolution after maybe February? Like, I've never talked to somebody in the summer who was like, yeah, I made this resolution back in January, and I've really been sticking. Like, even if you, like, have the best intentions, you either quit or forget about them, Right? And all of us, all of us in our minds pretty much have the idea that they're doomed to fail. Sorry, this is a really chipper message this morning, isn't it? But here's the ironic thing, okay? As much as all of us would say like, oh, New Year's resolutions are silly. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't promise to change something. The, the, the truth is, all of us have things about ourselves that we want to change, don't we? There's something in it. Like, nobody thinks their life is perfect, and nobody thinks they're perfect. 
So all of us have, and maybe it's not a list, maybe it's one thing, but maybe it's 30 things. I don't know. But all of us have things we wish we could change, things we would like to change. Whether it's, it's physically or socially, whether it's in our relationships, maybe it's something about our personality. You know, it's that, that temper and you just keep losing your temper or it's your spending habits and you're just like, I got to stop spending money on that money that I don't have. Maybe it's, maybe it's a temptation and you just keep falling for it. Maybe you're just doing that too much or too often. Whatever it is, we've all got something we want to change. And we promise that we're going to change it. We want to call it a New Year's resolution. And we don't just do it at the beginning of the year. Throughout the year, we're constantly telling ourselves, I am going to change. This is the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing the line in the sand or I'm putting down the stake or whatever metaphor or phrase you want to use. This is the time. I am changing now. We make a promise, and we don't even just make promises to ourselves. We, we make these promises to, to other people. You know, we're promising our kids, okay, I promise I'm never going to blow up like that again. We're promising our, our spouse, I'm not going to go there anymore. I promise I'm done. I'm, I'm done talking to her. I promise. I promise I'm done spending like that. I promise I'm done. We make promises to, to our kids, our parents, to our spouse, our boss our teachers, our roommates, we, we, we promise this is the moment. I promise. And we mean it. Like, like when we make those promises, those, if you want to use the word resolutions, it's not like in the back of our minds, we're thinking I'm not really going to. Like we have full intention, every intention to make changes in our lives. And sometimes, sometimes we do for a little while. I mean, sometimes things get better. And then eventually, we, we flame out. I mean, we give in, we indulge, we give up, we lash out, we, we blow it, we flop, we fail. Why? Why does that happen? I mean, why do we keep failing? It's not for a lack of wanting to do better. It's not because we didn't really mean it. It's not because we didn't intend to change. Why can't we keep our resolve? If you feel that way, if you've ever had that, that experience or, or those emotions or that feeling of like, I'm trying to change, but I can't. I'm trying, but it's like, it's like I'm fighting against myself. If you've ever felt that way, you are in good, good company. Because what we're going to see is one of what a lot of people would consider one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. The Apostle Paul, who wrote over half of our New Testament, he had the exact same struggle. And he talked about it in this letter that he wrote in the first century to Christians in Rome. And, and remembering, of course, that when he wrote this letter, it wasn't divided up in chapters and verses, but... We've divided it up into chapters so that it's easier to find things. And, and so in the chapter that we call Romans chapter 7, it, it's kind of like Paul's reflection on this very idea of wanting so badly to change, of wanting so badly to do what's right, but constantly struggling and feeling like he's constantly 
failing. And in doing that, he asks a question. And it's a question I think all of us need to ask. And it's different than the question most of us ask when we go through this struggle. So I'm going to look at this together today, Romans chapter 7. And we're just going to look at the tail end of this. But like I said earlier, you can go through this entire chapter and the whole thing, he goes into even more detail. But he kind of starts to sum it all up in verse 21 when he says, so, meaning with all of what I just said, kind of my, my overall conclusion that I come to is this. So I find it to be a law. And by law here, he means this is like a principle that it's just true. And as much as I hate it, as much as I wish this were not true, I, I have found that this is true, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. When I have this desire, when I know the right thing to do, there's something right there pushing me against it. Now, The first thing I I want you to notice this morning when Paul is talking about this, that he clearly believes that there is such a thing as right and wrong. That Paul clearly believes here that there's some sort of a standard of what is right and what is not right. He says, I want to do right, but evil lies close at hand. So Paul believed in evil. And that's not necessarily a popular notion or a popular sentiment anymore. Not everyone believes in evil. And in fact, some people might even say that the, the experience Paul is describing here is all completely in his mind because there's no such thing as right and wrong. It's all relative to how we view the world. But if you read what Paul's saying, he doesn't believe that there's just this relative idea of whatever I do is right for me. Paul clearly believes that there's a right and a wrong. And right is not just whatever he does. He believes there's something called evil and and it's something real. And it's something that's not just an idea in his mind, but almost like like a real thing. Like almost almost a, substant, uh, a substantive thing that's inside of him. Later on, he'll use the word sin to describe it. Sin is a, kind of an unpopular word. Evil is an unpopular word. Most of us would rather not say that we've done evil or that we've sinned. Um, most of us would rather say that we made a mistake because it's a lot nicer, it's a lot gentler, and it doesn't make me feel as bad because everybody makes mistakes. But Paul doesn't talk at all about mistakes in Romans chapter 7. He talks about sin and he talks about evil. He's not saying here that someone else is looking at him and saying the things he's doing are wrong, even though he believes they're right. He's not justifying. Well, the reason I did that was he's saying there is a real thing called evil. And in his own mind, in his own conscience, he knows the difference between right and wrong. And yet he 
struggles. He goes on in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He, he agrees with the word delight in the original Greek that Paul wrote means to, to happily agree. He says, I totally think that God's law, what God says is right and wrong. I totally agree. I'm not arguing here. I'm not trying to say, no, God, you you say that, but if you knew my circumstances, no, God, you say that, but what about these people or what about this situation? He's saying, no, I completely agree, happily agree. I would love to do the right thing in my mind and in my inner being, in my soul, in the very depth of me, there's something that says, yeah, that's what's right. And I would love to do what's right, but... I see in my members, members is another word for body. And so he's saying in my inner being, I know what's right and I love what's right and I agree with what's right. And yet within me also, there's another law, another idea, another rule, and it's waging war against the law of my mind, waging war. Paul is not saying here that he's got two ideas in his head and he's trying to decide. Paul is not talking about multiple options and it's got like the scales going on. Paul is not describing that cute little cartoon graphic of the angel and the demon, right? And they're arguing and whispering in his ears. He's talking about something much more intense, He's talking about a war, a battle going on inside of him because he wants to do what's right. And yet at the same time, he wants to do what's wrong. And how is that even possible? And it's like, in the language he uses, it's like not just a war, but it's like, it's like that, that evil, that, that law of sin has made him a captive has enslaved him, has drawn him away from what he wants to do and taking, taken him to doing what he doesn't want to do. Earlier in the chapter, he described it this way. He's like, why is it that the things I want to do, I never do, and the things I don't want to do, I just keep doing over and over again? And it's this feeling and it's this sense of like, I don't even want to do this. Why am I doing this? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that, that, that in the moment you're doing it, you're like, why am I doing this? And it's like you're chewing and you're like, I shouldn't have even put that in my mouth. I don't want to do this. You know, it's like you're, as, as they're swiping the credit card, you know, like, I don't even want to be buying this. What am I doing? As you're opening the door and walking through the door and you're like, I shouldn't be here, but here I am. And it's like, almost like, almost like you're out of control or like something else is controlling you. And Paul looks at that and he feels that way. And in verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am. Wretched, horrible, awful, afflicted, man that I am. Now, that language might seem a little extreme. Okay, Paul, I mean, 
Yes, we get it. You, you, you're, you're struggling. Sometimes you mess up. Sometimes you do okay. Wretched. But if you've ever been through this, I mean, if you've ever had this internal war going on, and I think you have, you understand that feeling. That sense of, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and it leaves you feeling wretched. And in that sense of brokenness, in that sense of, I can't succeed, in that sense of helplessness, Paul asks the question. But like I said, it's not the question we normally ask. See, normally we get into this situation and it's so bad and it's so difficult and it's so painful. And we turn and we ask the question, what can I do about this? How do I fix this? But that's not the question Paul asks. Paul doesn't ask, what do I do? He doesn't ask, how do I fix this? Instead of what or how, Paul asks the question, who? Who will deliver me from this body of death? We don't need a new plan. We don't need better ideas. We don't need stronger resolve. The war that's going on inside of us, what we need is someone to deliver us. When we've been taken captive, we don't need a different method. We need a rescuer. And that's what Paul realized. So Paul recognized that the war that's going on inside of him, he doesn't need a better idea or a new strategy. He needs a deliverer. And that's why in verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our only chance and our only our only opportunity, our our only possible way of overcoming this struggle inside of us is not through ourselves. It's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is our deliverer, who delivers us from the battle, who delivers us from our captivity, who frees us from our sin. When Jesus Christ died and rose again, he defeated sin. He is our victor. And in defeating sin, then we who have believed in him, we who are in him, and we we talked about that last week. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to, to go online and listen to that because we talked about what it means to be in Christ. And part of what it means to be in Christ is that those of us who are in Christ are dead to sin. And that doesn't mean that we never sin. I mean, look at what Paul's talking about here, and you know that as well. What it means is that the power of sin 
has been defeated. That Christ is more powerful than sin and that we are freed from sin. But here's the question that goes with all of that then. If Christ has freed us from sin, if sin has no power over us, why do we still sin? I mean, look, in verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, right right after saying that, he says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. What's going on here? If, if Jesus has, has won a victory over sin, if he's freed us from sin, why is it still there? Why? Okay, like, seriously, if God sent Jesus to earth, if Jesus came here to win a victory over sin and in our own lives to free us from sin, why did he leave it? Why didn't he just take it all away? Why doesn't he just make us perfect? When he, when he creates in us a, a new creature, when he brings us from our dead state of always being a slave to sin into being new and alive and free in him, why doesn't the sin just go away? Now, partly that question, which is a good question, which is a question I ask myself, I'll bet you've asked that question yourself at times. But it kind of comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of God's purpose for us. Let me explain what I mean by that. God, God didn't send Jesus to make us better. Jesus didn't die just to change our behavior. He wants to change us. Jesus didn't, didn't come to earth and, and live a sinless, perfect life so that I could later come and be a better version of Aaron. He didn't come so that I could live my best life now. He didn't come so that I could be a good guy. He had something much, much greater in mind. And so he allows us to continue to struggle with sin because our continual struggle with sin reminds us of our continual dependence on him. See, God is much more interested in having a relationship with you than he is in you just obeying. He's much more interested in you than in what you do. God doesn't just want you to always do the right things. He wants to love you and you to love him in a way that displays his glory, his glory and his power to the world. So if God came in and if when Jesus died and and when we trusted in him, he just fixed all of our sins. If he just made us all perfect, if he just took away all those struggles within us, here's what would happen we would start to believe and we would start to think that we don't need him. 
anymore. We would start to think that we've got things figured out and we would have people looking at us and saying, wow, he's a good guy. Wow, she's pretty awesome. He never messes up. He never does anything wrong. He's got everything all figured out. And we would start to live our lives as if we were the purpose and we were the point, as if we didn't need him. So God leaves sin in us so that we never forget that we need him. See, God knows, God knows that we have to say, wretched man that I am, before we will say, thanks be to God. That we won't look up to him until we realize how horribly defeated we are. So he leaves us struggling in our sin, but he doesn't leave us alone. He's always there for us. Paul talked about this more and and kind of explained this better than I'm explaining it in 2 Corinthians. So if you want to flip over there to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, again, writing to a different church, talks about exactly what's going on and why we still struggle in our lives. And in the context of what what I'm about to read, Paul's been talking about how God did some incredible, amazing things for Paul and through Paul. And if anybody living on earth could have said, look at me, look at how awesome I am, look at the awesome things that have happened in my life, it was Paul. And so to prevent that, he believed God did something very specific. Look at chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, God had shown Paul some amazing things and helped him to understand things no other human being had ever understood before. And he said, so to keep me from becoming conceited about those things, a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Um, We don't know exactly what this is. Paul uses this term, the thorn in the flesh. It was some problem. Maybe sin, maybe uh, it was possibly a a difficult person who kept bothering him um, and not just bothering him like, you know, texting him late at night or something like that. I mean, bothering him like following him around and harassing him. It could have been health problems. We're not sure, but whatever it was, the purpose of it is more important than what it was. Did you notice that there in verse seven, twice, twice he repeated to keep me from becoming conceited? That's how he starts and ends the verse. Very clearly, why am I having this problem? It's for my own good to keep me from becoming conceited. Verse number eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, begged, I pleaded God to take this away, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. For my power, for God's power is made perfect in our weakness. 
Therefore, I, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why do we struggle? Why didn't God just take away all of our sin, all of our weaknesses, all the temptations? Because his power is made perfect in our weakness. Because God is doing something greater than just making us better. He's displaying his power and his glory to the world. And so through our trials and through our struggles and through even our sin, God is working in us. He's working in us, yes, to change us. That is a part of what he's doing. He's also working in us to display his glory to the world, to show us and to show others around us his greatness. But, but here's the really hard aspect of all of this. It's a lot easier to see it in hindsight. In retrospect, it's, it's a lot easier to look back and see how God was working through your pain. It's a lot easier to look back and to see how God was growing you even through your sin. It's a lot easier to look back and see that than it is to see it at the time. When you look back, sometimes you can see the ways that God has used everything. You see why he allowed you to go through that. You see why he allowed you to struggle with that sin. You see why he allowed those difficult things to happen in your life. In hindsight, at the time, at the time, we don't always see it. And it's not always a lot of comfort to say to somebody who's going through a struggle, who's struggling with sin or a loss or something difficult, well, you know what? God is using this. But when you look back, you can see. You can see the ways that God has been shaping you, the ways he's been changing you. He's conforming you into the image of Christ, but it's slow. It's gradual. It's progressive. It's often painful. And so there's some of us in here right now this morning who are in that stage. We're in that stage of being broken down. We're in that stage of being brought to the place of saying, wretched man that I am. Or, or honestly, some of us are in the, the stage right now where we're saying that. And we're in that, that uncomfortable stage between saying that, but struggling to say thanks be to God. Because we're feeling the pain, but we're not seeing the change. And here's what we have to remember. In the broken down or in the breaking down, that we do have hope. And the hope we have is not, listen, the hope we have is not that things will get better. Sometimes they don't. The hope we have is not that, that we can just try harder. Sometimes we can't. The hope we have 
is that we have a deliverer. That even when everything is falling apart around us, even when we are falling apart within us, that there is someone who will deliver us. Not necessarily in the way that we want or hope or expect, but he will deliver us. Through his grace, he will save us. And we have a promise of salvation. We have a promise of something better. And it's not based on us. It's not based on our resolve. It's not based on our trying. It's based on him and on what he's done. So what do we do with all that? I mean, how do we react? What, what do we, uh, we're looking at this and we're seeing where we are and where God is. But where do we land? Does that all just mean, so I just sit back and I, I just wait. God's the one working. I've got this struggle inside of me. If God doesn't change me, then oh well. I'll just do whatever. I'll just go on, just give up, stop trying, stop making promises I know I'm not going to keep. Is that, is that where we are? So as counterintuitive as this might seem, okay, as much as, please stick with me here, as much as this may seem, what I'm about to say may seem to go against everything we've just said and everything we've looked at, there's a very simple answer. And by simple, I don't mean easy. Okay, a very simple and difficult answer to all of this. We need to obey. We need to obey. In the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of trying and failing and trying and failing, what we need to do is obey. Because God is working in us and he works through our obedience. And as we obey him, even in small ways, even in little things, he shapes our hearts and he changes us on the inside and he changes who we are to love him more, to grow closer to him, And he enables us to choose to follow his law over the other laws, but he enables us through small obediences over time. Let me explain what I mean by that, by obeying. There are certain things that God asks us to do, maybe small things, to grow in our walk with him. And to grow in Christ. Things like reading regularly our Bible. Understanding what he says in his truth. Studying his words. Being a part of a group of fellow believers. Joining a community group. Or a fight club. Or some kind of a group where you can meet regularly with other Christians who are in the same struggle with you. To be a part of community. 
Giving regularly and sacrificially financially and of our time through service. And as we obey in those things and you say, but that has nothing to do with what I'm struggling with. Okay. See, I have problems with my temper and you're saying, so I should read my Bible. That doesn't go together. But when we obey, even in small ways, God works in our hearts as we obey him. He shapes us on the inside and he changes our desires and he changes who we are and he changes us more and more into the image of Christ. And so you say, well, wait, 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 wait. This is the opposite of everything you just said because you said we can't do it. We can't do it. And every time we try, we fail. That's right. We can't do it on our own. Apart from God, we can do nothing. But here's the really freeing part of the gospel. God's not asking us to succeed. God's asking us to obey. Obedience is on us. The results are on God. God asks us to obey him. He will take care of how it turns out. This is why obedience is actually both proof of and a result of our faith, our trust. When you obey God, it's you saying, I trust you. When you follow God's law, it's your way of saying, I don't see how this works. This doesn't make sense in my mind. But I'm going to follow, even though it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to trust you to take care of the results. See, in my mind, and probably in your mind as well, we think we can figure out how to get the best results. And the reason we make the promises and the resolutions is because we think we can figure out the best way to handle our problems and our difficulties. And so God is saying, do these things, obey me, follow me, I'll take care of you. And if we trust him and we obey him, then we put everything on him. But most of us would rather put everything on ourselves. I'll get this. I'll cover this. And then we fail. And we keep going through that struggle. Because we've got that war going on inside of us. And God's saying, obey me. God's saying, let me fight the war. God's saying, Jesus has already won the war. And sin has been defeated. Just obey me. So the struggle is never going away. That war within us in this life, never going to end. But we are not without hope. We're never going to be perfect. I'm sorry. I know you were hoping. Maybe 2015 was going to be the year you got there. It's not going to happen. We Collectively, individually, all of us are people in the midst 
of a progressive change process. And sometimes, sometimes it feels like we change by like leaps and bounds. Sometimes it feels like we change slowly. Sometimes it feels like we're taking steps backwards. But God is working in us. So actually, it's, it's okay to make resolutions. It's okay to want to change. God wants you to change. We don't have to lie about it. We don't have to pretend we've got everything figured out. And we certainly don't have to give up. But we need to remember where that change comes from. That it's not from us. It's completely from him. So we're going to move into a time of reflection. We're going to put some questions up on the screen for you to think about. And and as you think through these questions and, and as you pray to God, yeah, we've all got things we want to change. And God will change you. But what is it that he needs to work through? What step of obedience do you need to take to allow God to make those changes in you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. God, we know that we do not deserve your grace in any way. That within us, we do not have the power to earn your love, and yet you've loved us anyway. Thank you for that. Now, God, please continue to make those changes in our hearts, to draw us closer to you, to make us more like you. God, I especially pray for those this morning who are going through trials, struggles that that I probably could never even imagine, and yet you are there. And that you are the hope that they need. So God, I pray that you will speak in the hearts of everyone in this room. And remind them that Jesus Christ is their deliverer. In his name, in the name of your son, we pray. Amen.